2007, October 3rd. Lecture 11, The Calendar. Yesterday, we started a two-part lecture, the first part of which was to talk about our ways in which our time-telling conventions are based astronomically. We talked about the division of the year into solstices and equinoxes, the more unfamiliar but ancient division of the year into the cross-quarter days, for example, Halloween and, and Groundhog Day, correspond to the cross-quarter days in October and February, uh, respectively. A lot of holidays that we have used to have very close alignments with the equinoxes and solstices. Those have changed a little bit over time as we've slowly but surely decoupled ourselves from the astronomical ways of telling time. Now we keep time, for example, by atomic clocks rather than by watching the sun and keeping up sundials. But still, even a dial clock, which, you know, you know the old term clockwise and counterclockwise, what did people use before there were clocks to represent different directions of rotation? Anyone know? Sunwise and anti-sunwise. Okay, so you know, we sort of have started, pay, if you will, we've been very much technologically driven. We're paying more attention to the machinery than the origins of the motion behind that machinery. But there's an extra layer of complexity that we can toss into this question is, how do we keep time on much longer time scales? And how do we reconcile our timekeeping from day to day and year to year as we go into years to centuries and to millennia? And that gets us into a discussion of calendars. And calendars have very surprising astronomical roots behind them. This is where now precision actually begins to play a role because you now can begin to compare your calendars against each other, not over the years, but over centuries. So we're going to introduce the idea of calendars today and remind everyone that behind the origins of the modern calendar hanging on our wall is in fact a system of timekeeping that is based on a combination of the motions of the sun and the motions of the moon. There are two fundamental kinds of calendars that are used in the world. Lunar calendars, which keep time entirely by the phases of the moon, and solar calendars, which tie themselves to the cycle of the seasons. Well, actually, there's even a third type of calendar, which I haven't listed there, which is an obvious hybrid, a lunar solar calendar, in which they still follow lunar months, but then they play with that calendar to lock it down against the solar year. And we'll see examples of that as well. So we see examples all over of this. Then we want to say something about the origins of our modern calendar, the Julian and the Gregorian calendars. We now use the Gregorian calendar pretty much throughout the world. There are only a handful of isolated places that still use the Julian calendar or something else. And worldwide commerce, we all use the Gregorian calendar, even if locally people do something else. So we're going to learn today about the conventions of the calendars. And this is a multi-century and literally multi-millennium process of not only developing accurate ways of measuring time, but also developing more accurate astronomical measurements to see that the calendars were in fact not aligned with the seasons. And that required stable cultures and written languages and a very sophisticated knowledge of mathematics. Well, here's a sing-song. Most of you know various versions of this. This is probably one, not exactly the oldest version, but it's certainly the most coherent one. It comes from the 16th century. 30 days, half September, April, June, and November. February is 28 alone, all the rest of 31. Accepting leap year, that's the time when February's days are 29. This little bit of doggerel was meant to help remind people, even if they couldn't read or write, how their calendars worked. Well, where did this come from? 
Why is it some months have 30 days, some have 31, but old February's got 28, except every four years when it's got 29, unless it doesn't? Why is it 31, 28, 31, 30, 31, 30, 31, 31? Wait a minute, July and August both have 31. What's all that about? Where'd that all come from? Well, we're going to tell that story today, but in an indirect way. The long, one of the ways to keep time by calendar, the oldest way we know of, is using lunar calendars. Lunar calendars work by using the cycle of the phases of the moon from month to month. There's a real good reason for doing this. The phases of the moon are very distinctive. They're easily observed anywhere on the Earth, where you're on the hemisphere that can see the moon, you can tell which part of the, of the lunar cycle you're in. The phase is really distinctive. Furthermore, it's actually pretty close to the length of a year. Twelve lunar months, twelve cycles of the phases from new moon to new moon, is about 354 days. That's only about 11 days short of the 365 days in round numbers that goes into a complete circle of the sun around the ecliptic. So it's not too bad, but it misses by a whole 11 days. Now, the oldest recognizable calendars that we know of are lunar calendars. In fact, these are very common among nomadic peoples who have to move around, who may or may not have a written language. This isn't to say that only nomadic peoples use lunar calendars. In fact, as we'll see, the Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar. So it's not a requirement, but it is a common feature of the oldest ones. In fact, perhaps the use of the Islamic calendar goes back to a tradition in the Middle East. Here is perhaps the oldest lunar calendar known. It is 28,000, almost 30,000, excuse me, years old. It's a, called the Abri Blanchard bone. It was found in Dordogne, France. It's basically a, a, a bone tool with a series of notches carved in it, but then there are these series of holes and crescents put into it, which a sketch is shown here over on the right-hand side to make it clear. It's fairly clear that this bone is recording a complete set of cycles of lunations. And so it's thought by many archaeologists and anthropologists that this is, in fact, the oldest known human calendar. And it's reminding us in many ways that the marking of the passage of time on long time scales is probably one of the oldest intellectual activities of mankind, certainly long before we had written languages. Written language really only emerged around the third or fourth millennium BC. We still set about recording time. In this case, it looks like the primary way of recording time was by watching the moon. It was only perhaps later that we got time by adding to that, not only watching the moon, but watching the sun. Now, this 354 days, as I said before, of a lunar year, if you watch through 12 cycles of lunation and called that a lunar year, you're going to come up about 11 days short of 365. What this means is if you keep a series of lunar months, which season, which month a particular season arrives in is going to happen in a different month from year to year. You slip by exactly 11 days as you roll through. So if spring is in lunar month number five, about three years down, three lunar years down the road, it's now in lunar month four, three more years it's back in lunar month two, because you're off by 11 days per year. So you get this slip of lunar calendars against the so-called solar year. And since the solar year is the cycle of seasons, it kind of gets a little confusing after a while. You can't plan ahead. We know of a number of people have, have addressed this, but the one system that survives to us primarily comes to us from the Babylonians. 
Once again, the Babylonians really were the great, the great astronomers of distant antiquity, and a lot of their material has survived. What the Babylonians noticed, which was later picked up by a Greek named Meton, who his account was the one that survived into the modern age, and so we refer to it as the Metonic cycle, is that 235 lunar months is almost exactly 19 solar years. What this means is, if I'm out there, let's say, using modern calendar, I'm out there on the October the 3rd, and I look up in the sky and I see first quarter moon. When am I going to walk out on October 3rd and see first quarter moon again? The answer will be 19 years later. So the cycle of lunar phases against the seasons repeats itself on a 19 year, approximately 19-year cycle. It's not exact, but it's close enough for practical purposes. So this means if you set up a cycle of 19 solar years and 235 lunar months, you only have to make a handful of calendars to cause everything to come back into alignment. Well, the Babylonians decided to do this one better and actually tweak their lunar calendar to add in a few extra days here and there to make up for the difference of 11 and pay attention to this 19-year metonic cycle of the cycle of the repetition of the phases. And so they came up with the first known hybrid lunisolar calendar. They stuck a month, extra month in every couple years or so to kind of keep things more or less tweaked up. So now the seasons would sort of bounce against the different months, but only back and forth between a couple rather than rolling through every month over the course of a 19-year cycle. This particular calendar had a really deep impact on one particular group of people, the Hebrews who were slaves in Babylon, and they picked up this calendar and it later became the basis of the Hebrew or Jewish calendar. So lunar calendars actually survive to the present day. There are a number of them in various forms. The, really the only modern remnant of a purely lunar calendar is in fact the Islamic calendar. It actually keeps a full cycle of 12 lunar months of 354 days. And this means that the months really occur in different seasons. For example, the holy month of Ramadan, which we are in the middle of right now, is going to occur 11 days earlier next year and 11 days earlier in 2009. The reason is because the months begin exactly on the appearance of the crescent moon after new moon and end with the reappearance of the moon from the next cycle. So, for example, we're currently in the month of Ramadan. Ramadan will be ending not too long from now because we just passed last quarter moon. And the, um, I know I'm going to badly mispronounce this, it's the Feast of Ed al-Fatir, which marks the end of Ramadan, will occur when once again the crescent moon is visible. But a number of years ago, Ramadan and Christmas nearly coincided. That's why the U.S. Postal Service put out simultaneous Ramadan, Hanukkah, and Christmas stamps. So it's, it's another example of a ca lunar calendar that survived to this day and it still has impact. You can still watch the lunar calendar rolling through the years. When will Ramadan occur about the same time again? 19 years from now. So that's how you know the cycle. So if you want to know when Ramadan is going to occur roughly in, com in combination with Christmas, go to when it happened a few years ago, count 19 years forward, and there you are. So the metonic cycle actually rolls into this. You only have to have so many conversion calendars between the modern calendar and the Islamic calendar. There's also traditional Chinese and Japanese lunar calendars as well that have survived. The Hebrew calendar is an example of one of these hybrid lunar-solar calendars. It keeps lunar months, but in order to keep yourself aligned with the seasons on the 19-year metonic cycle, 
What it does is it intercalates, sticks into it, seven leap months per cycle. So during the 19-year cycle, there's a cycle of every two or three years to, build, to keep things lined up. An extra 13th month is shoved into the Hebrew calendar. It's a month called Adar 1. Adar 2 is the one that occurs every year. And then they sort of alternate between doing it every two years or three years so that after seven leap years, you complete one full cycle of a 19-year metonic cycle. So again, this has the effect, for example, of causing when the date of Rosh Hashanah, which is the current, big, the, the, the most recent uh, major Hebrew holy day, of course, been Rosh Hashanah, that will rattle back and forth through the calendar. It can occur as early as about you know, 4th or 5th of September and about as late as the 3rd of October. But it only rattles between those two dates because this extra month is put in to kind of force the lunar calendar back into alignment with solar. Whereas the Islamic calendar, because it's purely lunar, has Ramadan roll through the entire cycle of the year. So it's a different style of, of dealing with this problem of, I want to keep the month by the phase of the moon, but whether or not you choose to lock yourself down to a particular season by paying attention to the com combined motion of the sun and the moon. More modern Japanese and Chinese calendars are, in fact, lunisolar variations on this. Everyone has sort of slightly different variations upon this theme. It's very, very common. Here's a, a beautiful example of one of these lunar calendars. This is an Islamic lunar calendar that's inscribed on the back of an astrolabe that's uh, kept in the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. So it's, it's a sufficiently complicated calendar, but it's, it's rational. You actually can make sense of it, you can compute on it, and you can actually inscribe it on the back of an astrolabe and make yourself a little calendar computer to carry with you. And in fact, there are dozens of, or hundreds literally, of examples dating from the 10th century forward of these, of these gorgeous astrolabes inscribed in Arabic containing on them not only all the little bits needed for navigation, but a complete calendar there so you can reckon the complete 19-year cycle. It's really great. Now, there's another way in which you can reckon time, and this is also an ancient way, and this is to reckon time by the sun, to develop a so-called solar calendar. Solar calendars mark time by the seasons. They watch the sun as it moves along the ecliptic, and they start or end either on from, from equinox to equinox or solstice to solstice. So you start in the vernal equinox, go through a complete cycle to the next vernal equinox, that counts one solar year. The arrival of the seasons, which is why you would tie it down to this, often has great cultural and practical applications. For example, you might know when to plant or when to harvest is tied to the seasonal times. In particular, in Egyptian society, which was the development of the first recognizable truly solar calendar that had no lunar calendar in it whatsoever, was the ancient Egyptians. And they were most concerned with the fact that Egypt, the whole civilization of Egypt, was, was really concentrated on the thin strip of land surrounding the Nile River where it wasn't awful desert, where it was fertile enough to grow food. And every year, with the onset of rains down in Africa at the sources of the Nile, the Nile would flood, pushing silt out into the ground and beginning the cycle of agriculture. So it was really important to know when that was going to happen because that seasonal weather pattern was just that, a seasonal weather pattern. They began to tie their calendar down to the, to the motions of the sun rather than to the moon because the annual seasonal cycle was absolutely essential to their survival. So religious festivals have also played a role in the choice of a solar calendar. In the Christian tradition, because we picked up a lot of Roman holidays, we picked up a lot of Celtic holidays, both of whom use solar or lunisolar calendars, a lot of, as we saw yesterday, 
Familiar Christian holidays are tied to the equinoxes, solstices, and cross-quarter days. So it makes sense within that ritual tradition to keep a solar calendar. So there's lots of different reasons why people would adopt a solar calendar as opposed to a lunar calendar. So the Egyptian solar calendar, as I said before, is one of the most ancient. The, most, the earliest versions of this we can see date back as far as 5,000 years ago. Um, it, kept the, it was organized as follows. It divided the year up into 12 months of 30 days. So there's a bit of remembrance of that 12 lunar cycles per year hiding in there, but they realized it was going to come short of 365 days, so they adopted an artificial month of 30 days. Now, 30, day, 30 times 12 is only 360. You still come up five days short. So they'd add an extra five days at the end of the year, which was basically party week, in which they would basically intercalate five days to bring it up to 365 whole days. And it was a series of religious and, and public festivals during those days. Those were the five intercalary days. Now, their year did not begin in January. Their year began in, in July in which the star Sirius, which is the brightest star in the sky, is seen to rise above the eastern horizon just before the rising of the sun. The rising of a star together with the sun is called a heliacal rising. So the heliacal rising of Sirius was how the Egyptian civilization marked the beginning of the year. This roughly corresponded to the time of one of the Nile flood seasons. By 300 BC, so the, the, one of the things about Egyptian society is it, it didn't advance a whole lot from its founding about 3000 BC, but it was incredibly stable. The thing had a, an amazing center of gravity. You couldn't knock it over to, to save your life. And as a consequence, the ritual was very well defined and stayed well defined for millennia. Over time, they began to notice that their 365 day calendar was slipping against the seasons. And they realized the reason why was that they had the length of the year wrong. The year is not 365 days long. By their reckoning, it was about 365 and a quarter days. That's pretty good. That's only 11 minutes and 14 seconds longer than the true value in the current day. And if I extrapolate backwards for small changes in the Earth's rotation, it's not too far off. You know, it's that, that rotation change turns in seconds. So the Egyptians were long-lasting enough to notice that their calendar didn't line up after hundreds of years. And they began to correct it, and by 300 BC, that correction, they'd added a quarter day. And they dealt with that in various and sundry ways by adding an extra day or so, but in no apparent pattern. So the Egyptian calendar, again, was a, was a solar calendar. Here's an example of one of these Egyptian solar calendars. These markings here underneath the god Horus are, in fact, the markings out of a full 365-day Egyptian calendar. It's sitting on a beautiful stella here on the side of a, on the side of a building. Now, Roman civilization up in the northern port of the Mediterranean began to come into its own in the second, third and second century BC as well. And they began their time with originally the most ancient calendar of the Romans was a lunar calendar. They began as they began, became more settled, they actually developed a lunisolar calendar. The lunisolar calendar they developed was as follows. It had a basic set of 10 months, 10 lunar months, in which they would add extra months and extra days to make certain things more or less lined up with the seasons. Now, we still remember those 10 months in the language we use for modern months. The last month of the year is December the 10th month. November the 9th, October the 8th, September the 7th, and then it slowly falls apart. 
But in the old days, those things were named the first month, the second month, and up through the tenth month. And then they'd throw a couple of extra months in there and a couple of extra days to bring it up to about 365 days. The people who were in charge of this, in fact, there was one, was the high priest. He was called the Pontifex Maximus. He was in charge with the other college of priests of keeping the calendar aligned from year to year. So they didn't actually plan long term. They kind of did this at need. The fasti, the holidays, were extremely important in Roman society. They happened to be big market days. There were lots of... The, the way the Roman religion kind of worked is you, it was, the whole idea was not so much that ritual was so... that beliefs were so important, is that you did the right rituals to keep from pissing the gods off. So the idea was that good fortune and bad fortune was based on whether you did the festivals right. So that kind of mattered to them. But of course, the festivals brought a lot of people into Rome, bring in a lot of people, brings in a lot of business. And so the, you know, the priests got a little corrupt over time. So for the right amount of money under the table, they'd shift the calendar to be favorable to you when you knew you had a shipment of stuff coming in. And the Fasti would, wow, the calendar has the Fasti arriving just about the time all that good stuff just came up from Egypt on your ship. So it started to become a real mess. It was a real problem in Republican Rome. And in fact, the Pontifex Maximus was really one of the big problems here. We still keep the language of the Pontifex Maximus actually still remains to the present day. One of the titles of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, is the Pontiff. Okay, so hiding in that is a little bit of the history of this. Now, it changed when Julius Caesar became the, pro, the, the, the primary council of Rome. He became the, uh, the person who had most of the power. We use that word imperator. And as part of his offices, he became the Pontifex Maximus. Caesar was a very rational man. He traveled very far, including traveling into Egypt. And he said, you know, as part of basically taking care of the, the, the corrupt Republican rule here, I'm going to fix the calendar. So in the year 46 BC, he asked the Alexandrian astronomer Sosogenes to help him with the Roman calendar reform. Sosogenes was an astronomer. He's actually a Greek. He was living in Alexandria, which is the northern part of Egypt. And the Greeks in Egypt had come into contact with the, with the Egyptian solar calendar of 365 and a quarter days. So Sosogenes used this as his starting point. He said, look, this whole thing of 10 lunar months and all this intercalation is a complete mess. Let's do what the Egyptians do. Let's divide the year up into 12 months of 365 and a quarter days. But then he said, okay, here's the divisions. We're going to divide it up into 12 months, but rather than 12 months of 30 days each, I'm going to alternate between 30 days and 31. Now that actually gives me 366 days if I do that. So if I had 6 of 30 and 6 of 31, that adds up to 366. Okay, kind of misses it. So we'll pick February, this second month out in here of the year, and we'll take away one of its days and give it only 29. So when I have 4 with 30, 5 with 31, and 1 with 29, you do the math, that's 365 days. But that only makes up 365. You've got to have a whole number of days. You don't want your your year starting <laughs> six hours into the day. So the way you deal with that extra quarter of a day to make a complete circle around the sun is every four years you add an extra day back to February to restore your 31-30, 31-30, 31-30 pattern. You call it a leap day. And now you actually realign your calendar with the seasons. So this leap year makes up the difference between 365 quarter and 365 days per year. If you think about it, every three years you drop a quarter of a day. That would be adding up to three quarters of a day by the end of the third year. 
In the fourth year, if you drop that quarter, that would add up to a whole day, four quarters. So you add that day back on that fourth year and you start the whole cycle all over again. So your, your seasons slip by six hours now against the calendar. And every four years, you just slam recorrect back and you start that all over again. So Sasagini's calendar was really, really simple. Very even pattern of months. He was able to retain most of the old Roman months, so it doesn't going to cause too much of confusion. He did sort of play with February being 29 and then 30 on the leap year, but otherwise it was going to work really good. Caesar loved it. So Caesar declared that the year 46 BC was going to be the year of the introduction of the new Roman calendar, which now became known as the Julian calendar for Julius Caesar. But the calendar had gotten so far out of whack by 46 BC because of all the monkeying, they had to add 80 extra days to the year 46 BC. So 46 BC had 445 days in it. Now, Caesar decided that since this was the point for from now on, the calendar was going to be rational, that the year 46B was the ultimus annus confusionis, the final year of confusion. No more calendar confusion, no more priestly corruption. It's all just going to work mathematically and rationally. Well, the Roman people took one look at this and said, 445 days this year? Are you nuts? And so they called it the year of total confusion or the annus confusionis. It's interesting to note that within two years, Julius Caesar would be assassinated for an amazing ambition. People thought he was trying to basically make himself king in the Republic. One of the charges against him was his monkeying with the celestial calendar. However, despite the fact that Julius bought it on the Ides of March not long after this, you couldn't argue with the fact that this calendar really worked and it was completely immune from the corrupt influences of people trying to change it. The formula could be explained to anyone, and so it stuck. Now, one of the things they did was to take the 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 sixth get the number right sixth seventh eighth sixth the fifth month, which is was called uh, Quintilius, and they decided to rename it after the the rule. Civil War, they renamed it for Julius Caesar, hence we call the fifth month in the Roman calendar July. Now, later, when Julius Caesar's nephew, Augustus, was made emperor, imperator, they decided that he should be honored as well, and they decided to name Sextus, the sixth month, for Augustus. But in the Sasagenes pattern, July, July, Julius's month, had 31 days, Augustus had 30 days. Well, that wasn't going to do that his uncle had one more day than he did. So to kind of kiss up to Augustus, they stole a day from February. And that's why February now has 28 days. And July and August, the month of Julius and the month of Augustus, have 31 days each. Pretty good. It worked pretty good. Too bad it was wrong. And the reason it was wrong is because the year is not 365.25 days. The true solar year is 365.242199 days. Now, what that means is, you don't want to worry about that long number, but what that means is, is that you've actually reckoned the year longer than it really is. So a solar calendar, this Julian solar calendar, so reckoned, will actually get ahead of itself by one year, one day every 128 years. Well, 
Who cares on a human lifetime? Well, this is, after all, the Roman Empire we're talking about. The Roman Empire was to outlast Julius Caesar by more than four centuries. And the traditions, the language, and many of the daily administrative conventions of the Roman Empire were to survive because they were picked up by the Roman Catholic Church administration and spread throughout Europe. So it wasn't too long that the seasons began to slip against the Julian calendar. If you decided to ask, when is the vernal equinox going to occur? Okay, in the Julian calendar, it happens around the 20th of March. Well, 128 years later, it's now happening. Um, it's getting ahead of itself, so now it's happening on the 20th of March. Another 128 days later, it's happening on the 19th of March, on the 18th of March. And before you know it, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, it has slipped by a whole 10 days. So you are a whole week and a half off. So the vernal equinox, you go out and make the measurement, the vernal equinox is coming up and it's like, huh, it's the 11th of March instead of the 21st of March. Now, so why do people care? Why do we just sort of, you know, not just sort of slam readjust it every now and then? Well, part of the problem is if you made an artificial adjustment and you did it at random, then it becomes subject to exactly this kind of influence and corruption. And besides, what's to stop one country from doing it and not another? Well, there's another reason why this suddenly became unsupportable, and it has to do with events of the year 325 A.D. 325 A.D., for those of you who know your Christian history, is in fact the year of the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea is a town in northern Turkey. It's now modern Izmit. In that year, the church council decided on what the formula was going to be for computing the date of Easter, the holiest day in the Christian tradition. They adopted this by saying that the vernal equinox happened exactly on March 21st, whether it did or not astronomically, and that Easter is going to be the first Sunday after the first full moon of the vernal equinox that does not coincide with Passover. So in order to tell when Easter Sunday was going to be year after year, they had to know the arrival of the vernal equinox and the arrival of the first full moon after that vernal equinox, and Easter, of course, always fell on a Sunday. That's why Easter is a movable feast. Christmas is fixed on the 25th of, De of December, but Easter moves back and forth in the year by this formula. Don't believe me? Take a look. We still use this formula to this day. This formula was designed on the Julian calendar. Well, it actually matters that you get this right. The calendar ruled the life of Europe through the Middle Ages. Here's a beautiful calendar from the 14th century. It has the cycle of the moons, the cycle of the months, the various activities that occur during this month, and even the constellations of the zodiac. This is a gorgeous calendar. These are two pages out of the Tres Richiers of the Duc de Berry. Calendars were really important. But as the centuries went on, the calendar was getting worse and worse. Easter was landing on the wrong Sunday. And that bothered people. It bothered people a lot because it mattered to get it right. So finally, by the time you reach the 1500s, the calendar had slid by 10 days. And Pope Gregory XIII decided to do something about it. The date of Easter was being computed incorrectly in an egregious way. And furthermore, a lot of other important holy days were being celebrated on the wrong day. And they felt that it mattered. And it mattered a lot. So Pope Gregory XIII in the 1500s appointed a commissioner of the best astronomers of the time, geographers and everyone else and mathematicians he could get, to develop an improved calendar, to fix this problem once and for all. Well, the fix turned out to be a variation upon the same theme the Sasagenes used back in 46 BC. And it fell this time to an Italian physician by the name of Aloysius Lilius, 
or Luigi Lilio, to use his Italian name rather than his Latin name, Lilius came up with a very, very elegant formula. He started out by using the Julian leap year formula. If a year is divisible by four, then it becomes a leap year. You add an extra year to the, to the month of February. You add an extra day to make February 29 days, and you then get the Julian formula. However, that caused things to get ahead. So what you did was then you looked at the century years, 1500, 1600, 1700, 1800, and so forth. And he came up with the following rule. He said that if the century year is divisible by 400, it's also divisible by 4, it's a leap year. But if the century year is not divisible by 400, it's not a leap year. So 2000 is divisible by 4 and by 400, so the year 2000 was a leap year. It, in fact, is the only the second century leap year in the Gregorian calendar, the first one being 1600, the second one was just a few years ago in the year 2000. But 1700, 1800, and 1900, they're divisible by 4, so they would have been leap years in the Julian calendar, but in the Gregorian calendar, they're not leap years. The effect of this is to remove three days every 400 years. Well, remember that the drift of the Julian calendar was about one year every 128. So the effect of removing these three days every 400 years is to wrench the calendar back into alignment, but to do it fairly gradually by correcting it every century for that extra day. But you've overcorrected a bit, and so you neglect that correction one year every 400, and things keep pretty well aligned. In fact, the remaining error is only three hours of slip every four centuries. It's a great, elegant formula, and it works extremely well. So Lilius was able to get away with this without too much complicated mathematics. It was a very simple, and in many ways, a fortuitously simple formula. Here's an example of what it looks like. This is kind of a tricky picture to look at. This shows what the calendar shift is with respect to the seasons between the years 1750 and 2250 on the Gregorian calendar. The jumps you see zigging back and forth here is each leap year every four years. But when you reach a century year, 1800, instead of making the zig by one day, you neglect to add that day and the whole calendar jumps by one whole day. Then you go back to the zigzag of every four years until 1900. 1900 is not a leap year, so whoop, you jump a whole day. And now we go into the great slowdown where we're not going to jump abruptly until the year 2100, and then you wrench back into place. So notice that this is why the solstices and equinoxes move back and forth about a day every year or so. So for example, the summer solstice is sometimes on the 21st, sometimes on the 20th, sometimes on the 22nd. But we still keep pretty well aligned with time. However, there's a very slow drift of this particular calendar. Now, to make the calendar realign, because it had gotten so far out, Gregory instituted this calendar in the year 1582. He did this by ordering that in, the, uh, in October of 1582 to remove an extra 10 days to force the calendar back into alignment with the seasons. October 4th went down at sunset. When people got up the next morning, it was not October 5th. It was October 15th on the Gregorian calendar. So there was this abrupt jump in the calendar of 10 days. Um, this 
did the trick. It realigned the calendar with the seasons. The vernal equinox occurred on March 21st. Everybody was happy. Well, most people were happy. Now, who was going to listen to the Pope in 1582? Well, if you were a Catholic country, you listened to the Pope. So all the Catholic countries picked this up by the year 1584. Now, there was some people got kind of pissed off about this because they were paid for a whole month, but if they were paid by the day, the employer said, well, hey, the month is only 20 days long. I'm going to give you 20 days worth of pay. Oh, but I want a full month's worth of rent. And so that got kind of people really upset. So this, this caused a bit of discontent. There were no riots that were ever recorded. There's some rumors of that. But people got kind of bent out of shape about it. But then, you know, it kind of worked. And so they kind of left it alone. It was adopted all over Europe by the year 1750s. Now, 1500, for those of you who know your, your history, is about the time of Martin Luther and Calvin and the, and the height of the Protestant Reformation. Henry VIII in England, for example. And they were going to say, oh, to hell with this popish calendar. We're not going to deal with that. So they stayed on the Julian calendar for almost another two centuries. In fact, Russia stayed on the Julian calendar until the 20th century. When they changed the calendar over by 1750, the calendar had slipped yet another day against the seasons, and so they lost a whole 11 days. Now, this 11 days, in, in the year 1752, Britain enacted the calendar law, which realigned the British calendar onto the Gregorian calendar and sucked 11 days out of the calendar. Here's a famous painting from the year 1753-1754 by William Hogarth. It's one of a set of four on the election day. It shows an election day's entertainment, people sitting around getting drunk. That's what you did on election day back in England. What I want to call your attention to is not visible in this. I tried to find a blow-up. This is a, on the floor is a bunch of detritus, including some campaign pamphlets. This particular one I've circled down here says, give us back our 11 days. So this actually became a campaign issue in England in, seven, in 1752. But it didn't last very long because, you know, it kind of worked. But it's still off by a little bit. The Gregorian calendar formula of taking out that year every every hundred a day every hundred years and then putting one back in every four hundred is equivalent to saying the year is approximately three sixty five point two four two five days long. But the two true solar day is approximately three sixty five point two four two two or about three ten thousandths of a day shorter than the Gregorian year. This means the Gregorian calendar is still slipping, but now it slips by about a day every thirty three hundred and twenty seven years. This means that there probably is going to have to be a new calendar reform around the year 4909 to make up for this difference. But the calendar being aligned with the seasons has some wonderful properties. Here's an example. This is the Canadian War Museum up in, up in, up in Ontario, Canada, near Ottawa. In that museum is a window, an architectural feature called an oculus. Because now the calendar and the seasons are so perfectly aligned, the architect put this window in so that exactly at 11 a.m. on November 11th, the anniversary of the end of the First World War on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour in 1918, the sun shines exactly on a tomb of the unknown soldier. The motions are so deterministic, you can literally build buildings around them. Here's another piece of information that you can do with this. Remember this picture we've been looking at of the San Lorenzo sacristy. And before I said we could tell that this painting was a depiction of early July because the sun was in Cancer. Well, over here is the moon in Taurus. It's a waning crescent moon. You can tell because it's sitting there nicely um, east of the sun. And we find that because there's a 19-year metonic cycle, 
This could be the year 1423, 1442, or 1461. We can pinpoint the year for early July to the nearest 19 years. Well, the ceiling was built in 1422, but was not painted until the 1440s. So that probably pins this down to early July of 1442. The calendar really is written on the sky, but I can't tell the day. Uh, but I need one other moving body. There are three planets in this picture, and we'll talk about the planets tomorrow.